2021 has seen its fair share of challenges for the planet. In July, widespread floods across Western Europe were found to have been made 20% more likely to occur due to climate change. According to the World Meteorological Foundation, this year marks the past seven years as the warmest on record. Despite all this, 2021 was not all doom and gloom. In this episode, we take a look at some of the success stories from this year. From coral restoration in the Great Barrier Reef to promising emission reduction targets, we speak to a Victorian community that successfully campaigned against a new mineral sands mine and share a vital sign of hope for the future of beloved Aussie icon, the Tasmanian Devil. You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm Sophie Ellis. Firstly, I want to take you to the blissful waters of far north Queensland, the Port Douglas and Cairns area to be exact. Here a unique partnership has formed, one that is seeing life breathe back into the reef. I'm Professor David Suggett and I lead the Future Reefs team here in the climate change cluster at UTS. David's team at Future Reefs have been involved in a project called the Coral Nurture Program, where they're working to restore the reef after several bleaching events across the past few years. But they're not doing it alone. They're working with tourist operators. The Coral Nurture Program is a globally unique program initiated as a partnership between science and tourism. We were really aware that there's just a massive untapped potential of knowledge, resources and infrastructure on the Great Barrier Reef through the the tourism operation. We started talking with tourism about three years ago and it was very clear there was a, a dire need to develop tools to propagate coral, to regrow losses that had occurred over the previous few years through climate change events. David says that coral losses over the last few years have caused a dire need for restoration. In an ideal sense, we wouldn't have to intervene and really do this and plant coral. But what's happened over the last five years under climate change is we've had catastrophic um, heat waves, which have killed nearly 50% of all coral on the Great Barrier Reef, which is a staggering number. David explains, though the situation is certainly alarming, it may not be as devastating as you expect when you first hear that figure. It's not as though we've lost kind of 50% of the entire reef. What's happened is that most reef sites have lost about 50%. So whilst that's a problem, it's also actually an opportunity because there's lots of good coral to help rebuild the degraded areas. The reason we're intervening is because the, the stress events have really taken the wind out of the sails of corals to reproduce effectively on their own in the short term. So if we can really boost numbers and get them back to the point they can start reproducing again and rebuilding their own reefs, we've done our job. Growing and planting coral is no easy task, but the Coral Nurture Program has devised an innovative planting technique that helps give the baby coral the best chance at maturing. Operating underwater comes with lots of challenges. The, the biggest when it comes to planting is how do you fix it long enough so that currents and fish don't dislodge the corals again. 
So our tourism partners actually came up with a really innovative solution. It's called a coral clip, and it is a little attachment device that has a spring on it. And it basically, you hammer it onto the reef, it takes about 10 seconds, and it clasps the coral down firmly for long enough so that the coral naturally cements itself to the reef. With this method, the Coral Nurture Program at Future Reefs has seen some promising success. We started planting at the end of 2018. And as of, I think, probably about three days ago, we're at around about uh, 62,000 corals, which is just phenomenal. Really, what we have to remember is not just about planting as many corals as possible. It's also how many of those survive. And that's our sort of secondary flag that over 85% of all of our corals planted so far are surviving. Um, And that's a really, really important number because the global average with other efforts is about 70 to 75%. This partnership between science and tourism has so far seen great benefits for both sides, with the tourism industry in particular gaining some much-needed secondary income after another tumultuous year of border closures and lockdown restrictions. Obviously, tourism relies on tourists, and our model of planting is integrated into everyday tourism operations. So, of course, with border restrictions, uh, many operators have really been on a knife edge for survival. What we hadn't quite anticipated was just how important this has become to the industry as an insurance policy. Of the 60-plus thousand corals that we have now planted, 40,000 of them were this year through this kind of insurance policy-type approach. That is really the success story for us, that during the worst times that you know we've all had and experienced, um, that we've actually managed to demonstrate that propagation and planting can be cost-effective. It can give the industry um, really new hope moving forward. Amazingly, planting 40,000 heads of coral in one year isn't the only achievement that the Future Reef team are proud of in 2021. The other element actually is that we've been particularly excited about this year. The very first corals we planted back in late 2018, we demonstrated this year that they've grown large enough to start reproducing. So we actually documented the whole process um, literally about a week ago of them reproducing naturally. So we've really taken the process full circle. So this is important because, um, you know, planting 60,000 corals sounds like a lot, but actually when you think about the size of any one reef, let alone the Great Barrier Reef, it's actually not that many coral. But if every coral can grow up to be reproductively active and produce its own, say, thousands of corals every year, you've really introduced scale of recovery in in quick time. So that was a real milestone for us as a project um, and one that, you know, for, for the operators that were involved in the program from the very start, it was a very, very proud moment. Um, a lot of sort of parental type emotions uh, were, were definitely circulating on our social feeds. So, yeah, it's, it's been a really, really great year given the circumstances. With the most anticipated international cooperation on climate change of the decade, COP26, under wraps this year, the establishment of emissions reduction targets by various states, nations and industry emerged as a consistent theme of 2021. One country both praised and accused of being unrealistic in its ambitious reduction targets is Denmark. 
The small Scandinavian nation has set a precedent of environmental sustainability in the past decades, and last year the Danish government introduced a hefty goal of 70% emissions reductions by 2030. But how do they plan on getting there? My name is Lisa Velbom and I'm the CEO of Food Nation. I'm an agronomist and I've been working in the agriculture and food area for more than 25 years. Food Nation is a Danish public-private partnership established in 2017 to promote Danish solutions and products all over the world. As part of the road to meeting the 70% reduction target, in October this year, Denmark introduced a legally binding target for the agriculture and forestry sector. It outlines that the sector must reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 55 to 65% by 2030. This is uh, certainly highly governmental uh, motivated, but the industry is also very, very engaged in this agreement because the agreement can never succeed if the industry and the, and the farmers are not involved. All the different stakeholders has had different perspectives, of course, but the deal says the agriculture has to be developed and not closed down. Many countries have struggled to get industry-specific emission reduction targets in place. Lisa explains that as part of the negotiations, a number of practical steps were built into the agreement in an attempt to make this goal a clearer reality. One of these steps is clear research and development goals with financial support. They include research into animal feedstock, nitrogen leaching, petlands and land use, and plant-based food sources. In these research projects, the industry will be highly engaged because if the industry is not highly engaged from the beginning, we are quite sure, and this is also our experiences, the solutions will not be practical to roll out and and implement afterwards. Given that the agriculture sector only contributes about 20% of total Danish greenhouse gas emissions, How much of an impact will it really have in helping meet the greater 70% target? It's still very uncertain, and people say this very um, honestly. This is an ambition, and we have set ambitious targets, but how much it's for real going to reach, it's very hard to say for the moment. Because the, the very interesting thing about these deals is we do not have all the solutions ready yet, but we believe that because of our experiences, because of the way we have approached uh, challenges like this before, we actually believe that we can, we can reach the targets. But will this industry-specific target actually create tangible change? What motivation is there for the sector to change if the target is more ambitious than action? One motivation, of course, is that we have to change because the situation is very serious. The people working in and around the agriculture sector has a huge engagement and motivation in also being a part of the future. So the awareness of this is quite high. Denmark is such a small country, but we have really good experiences within uh, sustainable initiatives And uh, this is one of the reasons why we believe that even though we take small steps in Denmark, in a very small agricultural country, we have a really good outreach on a global scale. 
Denmark is only a small country, as Lisa explains. It is also a rich nation in the global north, and therefore the extent to which the technologies developed here can be affordably introduced and applicable to agricultural sectors elsewhere, particularly in the global south, is certainly important to consider. Despite this, Lisa says it's important to celebrate the small wins and incremental changes. I think that we should not be afraid of uh, sharing the good examples. We should not be afraid of sugarcoating. Of course, we need to keep an eye on what's going on, but we need to keep an eye on the actual results of the solution. And if we keep on looking at the actual results, how much are we reducing how much, uh, how many meals are we saving from being wasted and so on. I think we need to share all the ideas, both from the industry, the public sector, from the research areas. Otherwise, we will never succeed in reaching uh, SDGs, the, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And this is why I can kind of keep up the optimism because I see good examples of sharing. This year marked a pretty exciting milestone for conservation efforts in Australia. The Tasmanian devil, one of the largest remaining carnivorous marsupials on Earth, have been classified as an endangered species for over a decade. Tasmanian devils, first off, are amazing. Absolutely my favourite animal. But uh, essentially they're a carnivorous marsupial. So a marsupial just like a kangaroo uh, or or a koala, but um, they're eating meat. This is Kelly Davis. She's a supervisor at Aussie Ark, a non-profit organisation out of the Australian Reptile Park, first established in 2011 with the aim of saving the Tassie devil from extinction. They're about the size of, I guess, a small, medium dog. So males get to about 8 to 10 kilos. Females a bit smaller, 6 to 8 kilos. They're mostly black. They have a few flashes of white on their rump or their chest, uh, bright red ears, a lot of teeth and and pretty interesting set of vocalisations to back them up. Since the 1990s, Tasmanian devil numbers have been in rapid decline due to an extremely unique disease called devil facial tumour disease. And it's just about as grisly and gruesome as it sounds. So they are a a solitary species. They're predominantly scavengers as opposed to hunters. And uh, they can smell a carcass from several kilometres away. So what happens is, you know, they end up together uh, on these carcasses in like what we call a, a group feeding situation. Uh, and there's a lot of different social interactions that happen. So lots of screams and growls. Um, a lot of uh, little fights break out. It's really in these contexts and, and as well as males uh, fighting each other during breeding um, that's caused the, the devil to really come undone. Uh, and that's due to what's called devil facial tumour disease. Now, it's a contagious cancer. It's not a virus or a bacteria. And they cause these really horrible tumours to grow uh, on the face and in and around the mouth. And sadly, you know, it, it's facial in, in near 100% of cases. And um, it's really knocked the, the devil population over the last 25 years. 
Ozziak's effort to restore devil populations has taken a new approach in recent years through the reintroduction of the species from their Tasmanian habitat back to mainland Australia. So we're based uh, in the Barrington Tops. We're at an elevation of 1,300 metres. The reason that this location was actually chosen was essentially we wanting to recreate the natural environment of the Tasmanian devil. And so we wanted an environment with vegetation and climate as close to Tasmania as you can find in New South Wales. So because we're so high, typically, you know, we're 10 degrees cooler um, than that down the bottom of the, the mountain. And uh, we have people come visit from Tasmania and go, oh, it feels just like home. And, and that's exactly what we wanted for, for the Tasmanian devils. But what happens to an ecosystem when a species that's been missing for 3,000 years is returned? Kelly says that it seems much longer in human time than it does in Earth time. In fact, it may well help alleviate some of the human-introduced woes to the place. So obviously to us, 3,000 years sounds like a really long time. But evolutionarily, it's, you know, the blink of an eye. It's, it's really not a significantly long period of time um, in, in terms of evolution. So the Tasmanian devil used to be on mainland Australia and uh, all the species that we still have here have, you know, coexisted and co-evolved to has, have the Tasmanian devil within that ecosystem. And they do play really important ecological functions. You put back the species that, that are supposed to be there and it really should help the, the ecosystem fall, fall back into to a better balance and the benefits in terms of, you know, feral cats and foxes and things, the, the potential there is, is to be really beneficial having the, the devil present as well. Breeding for a Tasmanian devil is a dangerous, very loud and difficult endeavour. So far, the program has bred over 400 joeys. But survival is not easy as a little Tassie devil joey, which made the big milestone of 2021 all that much sweeter for Kelly and her team. Confirming those pouch young in, in those, those joeys that we'd released was, I mean, that's hard to top. Definitely an amazing moment shared by the whole team, you know, and it had been a long time, you know, in, in the build-up uh, to, to get to that point. Putting the, the, the devils out there and, and then catching them up and confirming those joeys, you know, they're just tiny little little pink jelly beans almost. And you, like I said, a lot of work and a lot of effort by a lot of people uh, to, to reach that point. And that's what it was all about. It was all about devils breeding successfully uh, in the wild. You know, 2021 has been, been a bit of a year for everybody. So that to have, you know, some good news um, come out of a year that, that everyone's had has been really, really special. At least seven joeys were confirmed by the team, but the true number could be anywhere up to 20. We're sort of on the precipice of literally right now. Um, this week we're actually going to do more trapping and hopefully trap those joeys that we saw in pouches, tiny little jelly beans eight months ago, catch them as independent little juvenile devils. Really, really excited to, to hopefully um, catch some of those and, and give them health checks and, and see what they're doing. And um, I guess that's another measure of success that not only, you know, have the, the females bred successfully and had those joeys in pouch, when they're in pouch, they're quite safe but then to, to get them all the way through in those wild conditions to independence um, will be a massive, another massive achievement for us. In the eight months since their birth, the joeys have been doing well. 
After a 3,000-year-long road, the Tasmanian devil may well be on its way to reaching a sustained, tumour-free population on the mainland of Australia. The journey to reintroduce Tassie devils to the mainland has leaned heavily on the practice of rewilding. The success of Tasmanian devil conservation could be applied to other species, and not just those affected by disease, but also biodiversity loss due to climate change. Everything to do with the environment has so many interconnected factors that keep things in balance. And as soon as you, you know, you remove something from that system, that's when it starts to fall apart. We are seeing more extreme weather events um, and, and the bushfires 2019, 2020, uh, I think were really indicative of that. Rewilding and, and putting these species back that, that used to be there, like they're such ecological engineers, they're keystone species uh, that, you know, will help us in tackling the, the big climate events that, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing even, even now and, and into the future and, and we can help sort of turn that around. It's all interconnected and so it can only have positive impacts. Finally, I want to bring you to the rolling green hills and vast fertile plateaus of the East Gippsland region in Victoria. This year, a small community nestled beside the Mitchell River have successfully battled against the instalment of a mineral sands and rare earth mine in their midst. The Calabar proposed mineral sands mine was to be located in Glen Allerdale, and it was also to be located very close to a large horticultural growing area of the Lindenau Valley. That vegetable growing area is a major producer of, well, food bowl basically for, for Victoria and for the country. This is Debbie. For several years, she's been involved in a campaign called Mine Free Glen Allerdale, who have worked to raise awareness of the environmental risks posed by the mine, which was first proposed in 2014. At that time, the community had just experienced major bushfires, loss of houses and cattle and fencing, and Calbar arrived within two weeks of that major bushfire, saying that they were proposing to have a mine at that location. And it's changed significantly over the time period when they initially proposed the mine to during what's called an environment effects statement process, which is a Victorian process. The EESP process uncovered a suite of environmental concerns for the health of the landscape, communities and cultural sites surrounding the proposed 1,675 hectare mining project. So there were significant concerns on on surface surface water environments, um, downstream wetlands and groundwater resources. Biodiversity was a significant concern because Calvar threatened species, um, endangered vulnerable species. Erosion of the, of the soils, the soils in that order area. of 700 large trees across that, that area, which Aboriginal and historical cultural heritage values. Um, a, a very major consideration was the number of people who lived in close proximity to the proposed mine. And the Mine Free Glen Allerdale campaign was first established by impacted farmers and landholders. In the seven years since the mine was first proposed, the campaign has garnered support across the country and the state. 
So it started small with a group of impacted landholders and then spread from there through community information sessions, looking at the broader impacts because indeed this had impacts across Australia because of the, the produce that's that's provided across the country and the potential impacts of, of contamination of that produce. There were 910 submissions to the Environment Effects Statement hearing and that was the most number of submissions that had ever been um, put into an EES process. So that showed a strong opposition to the project. Only nine of the submissions were in support of the project. Um, so that was 1% one, 1 of the, the submissions were in, in support. In November this year, Victorian Planning Minister Richard Wynne rejected the mine, finding it posed a significant risk to the environment and valuable horticultural industry. Oh, I can't begin to explain the emotion. People were crying. People knew how the environmental effects were such that they needed to be found as being unacceptable. They, there were so many of them and there were, there were such consequence that in our hearts we felt that it must be identified as being unacceptable in terms of the environmental effects. There's only one other mine that's been stopped in 20 years through an, an environment effects statement process in EES. And therefore, we felt, what are the odds for this one being stopped since so few had been stopped? And so the sense of relief was, was, in, was enormous. There's been huge pressures on, on the community over that period of time. You know, people have been on hold and there's been a lot of stress uh, because of it. And the whole sense of relief of, of that decision um, was enormous. I, I can't tell you how enormous it was, like hugging and crying and tears and it's just phenomenal. Facing climate change, species loss, tackling emissions and fighting for the environmental protection of your community, these are all in no way easy or breezy things to face. It can feel as though progress is impossible. But in 2021, Lisa Valbon, CEO of Food Nation, David Suggett, Director of Future Reefs at UTS, and Kelly Davis, Supervisor at Aussie Arc, have all witnessed a shift one that seems to make our pathway forward that little bit clearer. Just in the last maybe six to 12 months, there seems to have been a shift, a shift in what people as a society and globally, like their priority is. I think we're finally starting to see that message that we need to protect the planet that we live on and share with all these variety of species it is starting to get through. You know, what excites me is not just the, the big picture, but even what, you know, the the one person can do, whether they make the, the ecological choice against plastic use or, or or whatever it is. I think people are really starting to to take that on board. And I think, you know, that's where, where change is going to happen. The, the most critical elements, I think, the last one to two years has given us is final acceptance that, that climate change is not debatable. Um, it is a fact, it is happening. Um, and, you know, having accepted that, we can now move on to doing something about it. I think whilst the debate is still there, it gives us an opportunity to dodge the, the solutions. 
Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sophie Ellis. Thanks for your company.